0: You are listening to Sermon Snippets with Max Taylor, where we exposit God's Word and apply its instruction to our everyday lives. As we study God's Word, we are learning truth that corrects our thinking, meets our needs, and teaches us more about Christ. Here's your host, Max Taylor. Well, we are continuing in Daniel chapter 2, and as we mentioned last week, this is the largest portion in Scripture in the Old Testament that is not written in Hebrew. So it's very unique because it's written in Aramaic or the Chaldee language. And there are a few other portions of scripture written in the same language. There's two portions in Ezra. The first one is from chapter four through chapter six. And then there's a smaller portion in Ezra chapter seven verses 12 through 26. And then there's a verse in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 10 verse 11, that's also written in Aramaic. And then there's a compound word, it's a, it's a name, in Genesis 31-47, Jagar-Sahuratha. I think I'm saying that correctly. Jagar-Sahuratha, in Genesis 31-47, 30, verse 47. of course that's the name that Laban gave to the memorial that he and Jacob set up that basically represented the fact that they were not going to cross over one to another in order to harm the other. So those are that's it basically. Those are the occurrences at least according to the John Walvoord commentary of the Chaldee language in the Old Testament. So obviously this section from Daniel chapter 2 through the end of chapter 7 is the largest portion of scripture written in this ancient language. Very interesting. And it's pretty clear that God did this on purpose because the message contained in these chapters is intended to, to be taken to heart by the Gentile world. It has to do with the world empires, it has to do with control, and God's trying to show not only the Jews, his people, he does that in other chapters, but in this portion specifically, he's trying to show the Gentile nations that he alone is in control of the universe, that God is reigning supreme. On the throne, that he's in complete control, that the Most High ruleth in the affairs of men. And that's our theme here in the book of Daniel. Now I did want to clear up one other thing that I, I really wanted to mention last time, just didn't have time to, to say this. We're talking about the times of the Gentiles, okay? And and I brought up that even though Israel has been back in the land multiple times since Daniel was written. For example, during the life of Christ and right now since 1948. Even though those things have happened, we are still prophetically in this period of time known as the times of the Gentiles. And we can take heart because really the lesson there is that God is always on time. He's in charge of time. He's never running late. He's never, you know, behind time or ahead of schedule. His timing is perfect. Just as we saw that the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, at least by the Babylonian accounting of those years, was the same year that Daniel finished his training. So the lesson there is that God is always on time. His timing is perfect. But I did want to clear up that even though Israel is technically, theologically, still under the times of the Gentiles, we completely stand with Israel. We love Israel. We stand with Israel. They are a sovereign nation today. They don't need America or the, the UN or anything else, any other establishment to tell them what to do. They are their own nation. They have their own sovereignty. They can make their own laws, handle their own politics without other countries interfering. And anyone really who does not love Israel, who's not for Israel, is just plain against the Bible because they are God's chosen people. And that's clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Romans 11, Paul explains very clearly God's intentions with Israel, both past, present, and future. So there's no reason to ever be anti-Israel, to ever be against Israel. That's just not biblical. And God is for Israel. Even though right now they're apostate, they're being controlled to some extent by the Gentile nations around them. They're going to be the same in the tribulation. They're going to be once again besieged. They're going to be driven from their homes, but we still stand with Israel. Okay. And we pray for Israel. We support them. We love everything that they're doing with the IDF, trying to counter terrorism, trying to prevent world terrorism and acts of violence and they're trying to protect the jewish people not just in israel but all over the world that's all something that i support a lot so just want to make that clear we do stand with israel here now something else very interesting about this section that's important for us to know right now before we dive too much into chapters two through seven is that there is a unique structure involved in this portion of scripture and it's called a chiastic structure. This is a linguist term, and it, it really means that the subject matter repeats itself but in opposite order. So the author, and in this case it's Daniel through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he will approach a subject and then continue to write, backtracking to the original starting point. Okay, so I'll explain this by reading a quote from John Walford in his Prophecy Commentary on Daniel. He says chapters 2 through 7, that's this Gentile portion here written in Aramaic, form a chiastic pattern that offers encouragement and hope to the Jews in the time of the Gentiles. Chapters 2 and 7, so that's the first and the last chapters, explain the succession of four Gentile empires that would exert control over Jerusalem and the Jews until God finally establishes his kingdom. Chapters 3 and 6 warn the Jews... Of the persecution they would face during this period, and exhort them to remain faithful to God in spite of this persecution. Chapter three, when we get to it, we'll we'll dive into it. But it's basically when Nebuchadnezzar erects an image, and Daniel's friends refuse to bow to the image, and they're cast into the fiery furnace. Daniel chapter six, which is basically the correlating chapter, um, on the other side, as as the topic is kind of reworked in reverse order chapter six is when daniel ignores the king's prohibition against prayer and he's cast into the lion's den so you see there's similarities here and like you said chapters two and seven have visions that are very similar it almost repeats itself and then the the two middle chapters oftentimes in this chiastic literary structure this pattern that you'll see the middle is really the the core idea it's the emphasis and so chapters four and five uh, Walverd continues, encourage the Jewish remnant by reminding them of a time that would come when even the Gentile rulers would acknowledge that the God of Israel was ruling over all the nations. So that's just to kind of give us a little bit of a heads up that we're going to see these things kind of repeat. You have chapter two, then chapter three, then four, then five is very similar to four. 6 is very similar to chapter 3, and chapter 7, the final one in this section, is very similar again to chapter 2. And this is all under God's instructions to the Gentiles. And then we'll close out the book of Daniel by looking at God's intentions, again, with the Jews, chapters 8 through 12. So that's a bit of the backdrop here. Let's jump back into chapter 2, and we're going to read starting in verse 2, and we'll read down to verse 6. The Bible says, Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, Chaldean there, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, Notice the Chaldeans are almost the spokesperson here in this exchange. So the king answers and said into the Chaldeans, the certain class of the the wise men here, the thing is gone from me. We're going to look at that phrase here in a minute. The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. So the task for the magicians here, first off, let's break down who's involved. There's, Four classes of people mentioned in this particular account. We have magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Now, magicians, it really comes from a root Hebrew word. And again, um, this is mentioned in verse 2, so we're referring to Hebrew. The, The Hebrew word that's the root here has the meaning of stylus or pen. So it's possible these guys could have been scholars rather than magicians in the ordinary sense of the word possible. Or it also is used to refer to people who possessed occult knowledge, um, occultic knowledge or dealt in magic or spell casting. Then we have the astrologers. This refers to people who had the power of necromancy or communication with the dead. And it also has the idea of studying the stars to ascertain the future, kind of enchanting or um, trying to predict people's destiny, you know, people who performed exorcism. That's also another meaning for the astrologers. So some very shady characters here. Then we have sorcerers. That's the third group. And that simply means someone who practices witchcraft. Okay, so kind of similar to the others. These are all, for the most part, magicians, sorcerers, witches. Then the Chaldeans. Now, this is an interesting class of people. And we can't get into it. In super depth here, but there's three distinct possibilities when we come across the, the term Chaldeans. It can refer to an ethnic group of people from southern Babylon, or it's also used a lot to refer to a privileged elite class of citizens in Babylon. And if you want to know more about this, I would recommend here in, in the footnotes here, there's a book by the name of In and around the book of Daniel it's written by Charles Boutflower. It's a very old book but it's been kind of re- reprinted here. There's chapter 4 in that book talks about the Chaldeans in the book of Daniel. Pretty fascinating read. And that part is actually summarized in John Phillips' commentary exploring the book of Daniel's or the book of Daniel. In the back um, it's one of his appendices. Appendix 4 talks about the Chaldeans and he kind of summarizes The view expressed by Charles Boutflower. So basically, they're they're an elite group of society in Babylon. Very high leadership, very scholarly. And it has to do with their ethnic background coming from southern Babylon. There's a lot of history there. But they're the upper echelon of Babylon. But there's a third meaning here, and it's the wisest men among the king's court. So... Basically, these guys, that's why they were the spokespeople, they were considered the wisest people, the highest social class that you could get. And then throughout the book of Daniel, we see other categories such as soothsayers, wise men. They're included in similar accounts. So basically, Nebuchadnezzar called all these aides, all of his counselors here in his court, and he gave them the task of not just interpreting the dream, but also to tell tell him what the dream was. And the consequences were pretty harsh. He said if they did not, they would be cut in pieces and their houses would be destroyed. But there's actually a test here. This is very interesting. As I pointed out, he said, the thing is gone from me in verse 5. And that phrase is repeated again in verse 8. The king answered and said, I know of certainty that you would gain the time because you see the thing is gone from me. That phrase, the thing is gone from me, some people think that that means that he forgot his dream but that's not actually what it means it means that he had firmly established his mind so he says the thing is firm with me or in other words i have declared it or i have made up my mind so it's actually more more likely that he remembered his dream he just refused to tell them what the dream was because he wanted to test them to see if they would tell him what the dream was so that's the more likely interpretation there is that he remembered his dream and he was going to test these wise men to see if they could tell him the dream and we know this is probably true because they don't offer even a false story for his dream they don't even attempt to answer his request so we're out of time but we will continue in daniel next week thank you for listening to sermon snippets If this Bible study is a help to you, consider downloading the weekly episodes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Until next time, remember that God's Word is perfect, and it's everything you need to live for Him.